A couple of weeks ago uh, was our grand opening in our new space. And uh, during that gathering, we talked about the idea uh, that was put forth to us um, by Paul uh, about heaping goodness upon others, about blessing others, about uh, blessing them with the goodness of God. Last week, as we gathered, we read through uh, what is most commonly understood as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, but there's also a lesser-known version of the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6, um, which it's kind of up for debate as to whether this is one sermon that Jesus preached or if Jesus preached this a similar sermon multiple times. Um, but what is uh, agreed upon by those who have studied both of these different passages of, the, of a similar uh, sermon is that both Matthew and Luke writing about these, uh, this sermon compared this sermon that Jesus preached to Moses receiving the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Now, to us, we probably respect the Ten Commandments and think that they are good uh, things to abide by. But for people who are Jewish, the Ten Commandments are the foundation of what it means to be the people of God. It is the beginning and the end for them. That's how significant the Ten Commandments are. So there is an intentional move by the writers of Matthew and Luke to make sure that when these words are heard and then read from Jesus, and these are the blessed statements, uh, that we see them not as just another thing that Jesus said, but it is a bedrock of our faith. It is the foundation, or it should be the beginning point of our faith. Jesus went on the mountain to receive this uh, blessing from God, and then in Matthew, he stayed up on the mountain to preach the Beatitude sermons, and in Luke, he journeyed down to the plain. So you've got the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, and so last week, we looked at um, those blessed statements and how they should be the defining realities of people who are seeking to live in the kingdom of God. And one of the underlying messages uh, that, that the scriptures teach us over and over and over again is that generosity is the point. That to be generous is the point. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's not just something that we should uh, do when it's convenient. It is the point. And it is who God is. Right? God is a generous, generous God. Now, one of the most uh, known psalms is Psalm 23. Right? 
this is the psalm that uh, most people uh, who are, have any sort of familiarity with the scripture know at least part of it, right? It's the, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. There's a, a line in that psalm that has always been sort of concerning to me, sometimes troubling to me. It's the part where uh, the psalmist writes, uh, God prepares a place for me, a table for me in the presence of my enemy. It seems to me like that doesn't really fit with what I know to be true about Jesus. Because it, I've always understood that to be some sort of, like God is setting a way for me to sort of mock my enemy, right? Like, look at this table of all this wonderful food. I bet you wish you would have been nice to me, right? I bet you wish you were my friend, but you're your enemy and you don't have a place here. But that doesn't fit with who Jesus is, right? Who Jesus is is welcoming and inviting, right? He prepares a place even for his enemies and allows them to sit and to dine with them, right? Uh, what we read in, uh, in Romans when we were talking about Paul, when we were looking at heaping goodness upon others, Paul says, if your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If he's hungry, give him some food. And in doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. Now, when you first read that, similar to that Psalm 23 passage, you think this is some sort of way to, you know, we, we even say it like this, kill people with kindness, right? That we're going to be kind to you so that you can sit there in your frustration and be angry. But we know that that doesn't align with who God is, right? So what is happening here? Well, in the heaping the burning coals, uh, it, it is an uh, announcement of purification, right? That when we respond to our enemies with kindness, with goodness, when they're thirsty, we give them a drink, then we are opening up the opportunity for them to experience the goodness of God. Rather than responding to our enemies out of frustration and inviting them to experience frustration. And this is, as Jesus is talking about, the bedrock of what does it mean to be a follower of his, right? And so as we read through these uh, statements, we began to be challenged by this sort of different way of living, this way of living that is unique. Have you ever wondered why it was so important for Jesus to uh, talk so much about loving enemies and being kind to enemies? Have you ever wondered that? Well, as I have wondered that and sort of thought through, why is this such a common theme in Scripture and a common theme in what Jesus says, I've come to the conclusion that the reason for all the enemy talk is because how you treat your enemy reveals the depth of your formation. Right? How you treat your enemy reveals the depth of your formation. If you can learn to love your enemy, then you will automatically love everyone else. Right? If you can have that radical love to love your enemy, 
then you will automatically love uh, everyone else. And that's not something, loving your enemy is not something that we can do on our own. Right? It is something that requires a presence within us that is greater than us. So generosity is the point. We learn to uh, live according to the way of Jesus by doing the things that he has called us to do. And through um, our uh, long obedience in the same direction, as we like to say around here, uh, we learn day by day by day what does it mean to live in the kingdom of heaven. So after these blessed statements, Jesus goes on, and I want to read this, and I know it's a little long, uh, but if you can track with me, there's some really good things in here um, for us to uh, consider. But it's Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 27, and here is what Jesus says. says, but to you who are listening, I say, Okay? Now, this is interesting that Jesus stops and says this because, um, again, this is out of the Luke passage of the Beatitudes. And uh, in Matthew, it's mostly Jewish people that are present. But in Luke, there are Jewish people and Gentile people. So in the ancient world, uh, in the Jewish world, it was separated by people who were Jews and people who were Gentiles. And they drew very hard boundaries um, by those lines. If you were Jewish, according to the Jewish people, you were in. If you were a Gentile, if you were other, something other than Jewish, you were out. But Jesus very clearly states, you who are listening. Right? So he is talking to everyone here. As you who are listening, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So that word is highlighted because it's kind of what is Jesus saying here when he says even sinners? Well, in what Jesus is talking about here is putting everyone on the same plane. If there is nothing distinct or unique that ties you to the kingdom of God, right? So uh, someone who only loves those who loves themselves, it doesn't matter how righteous they think they are. There's nothing that uniquely identifies them in the kingdom of God, right? So he continues on. He says, if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment. What credit is it to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful, do not judge. 
Now, if you are familiar with the scriptures at all, we know two things uh, about God. God is merciful. God is also judge, right? Uh, what's interesting here is that Jesus is sort of putting these two things in juxtaposition to one another because he's saying that you as God's people tend to overlook the merciful side of God and jump straight to the judgment side of God and you oftentimes get caught up in the trap of resembling God in your judgment, but you forget about the mercy side of God, right? And this is a, a problem that has been together, or been, been present in people since the very beginning, right? If you study the scriptures and read uh, the first story of Adam and Eve, we often think that when uh, Adam and Eve slipped up was when they ate the fruit that God told them to. But actually, if you read a couple of uh, words before that, what Adam and Eve, where they went astray, was that they proclaimed the fruit to be good when God said, don't do it. Right? So they took on themselves the place of judging. But human beings are not capable of judging fairly. Why? Because I will not hold myself to the same standard that I will hold others to. Right? And so Jesus is saying here, be like your father in mercy. Don't try to be like your father and judge. And then he says, uh, and you will not be judged if you don't judge. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Right? We live in a world that's governed by scarcity. Right? We uh, are taught to think that there's not enough to go around. But in the kingdom of heaven, there is plenty of room for everybody. Right? Uh, there is an abundance. It's not just getting by. It is running over, and it will be poured in your lap. Okay. Now, uh, for the measure that, uh, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. Now, there's a lot in that passage, right? We could talk for hours about some of those different things, and maybe we would agree on some of them, maybe we wouldn't. But one thing I think that we would all say is that Jesus is making it clear to the people of God that they are to live uniquely in this world. Right? There should be something unique about those who live according to the kingdom of heaven. When I was in high school, I had the best, best friend in the world. His name was Ryan. Uh, I, Ryan and I, in many ways, were opposites of each other. But from the moment we first met, he and I got along really well. Uh, we were almost inseparable for a large portion of my high school life. And uh, Ryan was the best, best friend I had uh, because Ryan always stuck up for me. And Ryan was what they call a bruiser, right? Uh, if you messed with Ryan, or my favorite part about Ryan, if you messed with me, then Ryan would be ready to rumble, right? Ryan was a punch first and ask questions later kind of person. And as I was thinking about this, uh, when Jesus says to turn the other cheek and what kind of uh, stories in my life to how do I relate to this, 
I was thinking back to my high school days, and I really don't know why we were like this, uh, but it was something that everybody did, that we, whenever we were uh, upset with someone or frustrated with someone, or we didn't, just didn't like someone, or they were in a different crowd than us, if we saw them on a Friday or Saturday night, we would start fighting each other. And I can't think why, like we all, you know, lived in a nice area, Latha, Kansas, you know, it's a, a very safe and wonderful place. I don't know why we fought so much, but I remember us fighting often, not me, I was kind of sitting back in the background hoping that nobody would notice that I wasn't fighting uh, because then you would lose credit and I didn't want to lose credit. But for me, I have always classified myself as a lover, not a fighter, right? Uh, I kind of jokingly say, and then uh, I, I start to reflect on it, and it, it's, it is really true. If, if someone slaps me or hits me or punches me, uh, before I respond, I'm going to, cons to seriously consider how my response is going to affect them, and then I'm going to do what benefits them instead of what hurts them, right? Uh, and this was a problem for me, because as I said, you know, fighting was a way of life for us, for some reason. I look back on that time in my life, and I remember thinking of my friend Ryan, that he was like the epitome of strength. I can remember vividly four or five times when he just punched somebody, and they were knocked out. And you know there wasn't a debate of whether they were going to punch him back, because they were down on the ground. I remember thinking, man, he is so strong. There's so much strength in him. Ryan was strong in that he could put all of his weight into a punch. But that's not strength in the kingdom of God. Neither is it strength to let people walk over you and push you around. So what is strength in the kingdom of God? It's to not be controlled by impulse. Could you imagine how much of our lives would be, how much of our life would be different if we could learn to not be controlled by impulse? Everything from not overeating and feeling bloated for the rest of the day to how we treat others to the decisions that we make, the financial decisions that we make, to the way in which we treat ourselves. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, where they were interviewing an author of a new book, and I can't remember the author's name or the book that he wrote, but I remembered something that he said that was really interesting, because he was talking about how we talk to ourselves. And he, his argument was that we talk to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to another human being, right? We insult ourselves in a way that we would never even imagine insulting someone else. And imagine if we would have pause between our impulse to tear ourselves down, to insult ourselves, and to uh, then, in that pause, begin to treat ourselves kindly. In this Luke passage, Jesus covered a lot of territory of what does it mean to live according to his kingdom? 
Jesus said there should be a distinct and obvious difference between those who are alive in the kingdom of heaven and those who aren't. But what he draws attention to that sets us apart isn't what we would normally focus on. Most likely, we would focus on the issues of morality when it comes to us being set apart or living uniquely. And as important as morality is, morality doesn't equal righteousness. It never has, and it never will. So what makes followers of Jesus different? Well, I would argue that it's pause between impulse and action and opening up in that pause to act on behalf of your neighbor, even to act on behalf of your enemy. And it's this beautiful way that marks not only the people of God, but also God. It's who God is. There's a story in the Old Testament about Joseph. And this is before Egypt was enslaved in Israel. And if you know the story of Joseph, uh, you know the trials that he faced. Right? Joseph was, by all accounts, this sort of pure-as-the-driven-snow kind of person. Right? And because he was so good and pure, he was a little bit naive. And he didn't realize the harsh realities of the world. And that got him into some really unfortunate situations. Right? Uh, the first unfortunate situation was that he made the mistake of telling his brothers, his older brothers, that one day they were going to bow down to him. Right? Now, uh, I only have one brother and my sister who's over here. And uh, if I thought that they were going to bow down to me, I would have never told them that, right? Because I'm the youngest, like Joseph. I had enough sense to know that that wouldn't work out well for me. And it didn't work out well for Joseph, right? Uh, when they heard this, they became so enraged that they faked his death and sold him into slavery, right? Probably a bit of an overreaction. They should have paused between impulse and action, but they didn't, right? So he's sold into slavery, and uh, he has a fortunate happening there in that he winds up with a master who is a, a decent human being, treats Joseph as a decent human being. Uh, but again, Joseph kind of becomes naive again and, and, and ends up not seeing what was going on around him and is accused of something that he didn't do with his master's wife and was thrown in prison. And in prison, uh, Joseph, you know, he's, again, this pure as a driven snow kind of guy, knows that at some point the world's going to turn and work out in his favor. Uh, he begins to leverage his abilities to bless others, right? He begins telling uh, others dreams. And somehow through a series of events, this winds up getting its way to Pharaoh, who's been having this dream that no one can figure out. And so what does Pharaoh do? He goes to Joseph in prison, tells him his dream. Joseph discerns what it is that is going to happen. He's able to see clearly what is going to happen. And Pharaoh then takes Joseph and promotes him to be second in command of Egypt. 
So it's this up and down journey for Joseph, right? And because Joseph saw this dream, he leveraged his abilities and influence and resources to bless others. Uh, during a severe drought and famine, Egypt was able to stockpile enough supplies, food and water, that they were able to endure the drought, and they also were enabled to turn around and bless their neighbors. Now, Joseph was put in charge of all of Egypt's resources to distribute them to those who were in need. And guess who shows up? His brothers. His brothers show up, and when they recognize Joseph, they immediately know that their past is about to catch up with them. But that's not what Joseph does, right? Now, what's interesting here is that if we were to kind of zoom out from this story at this point, if we were to put upon Joseph what I think is oftentimes something we struggle with about God, that God is uh, this punishing God who anytime we mess up, he's going to smite us and put us in our place, then we would anticipate that that's what Joseph is going to do because that's what's fair and just, right? But Joseph didn't just know the judgment side of God. He knew the merciful side of God. And when his brothers come to him expecting that he is going to at best throw them in prison, but most likely have them put to death, what does Joseph do? He welcomes them. A place is prepared for them at his table. This isn't a new thing that Jesus began. This is what God had for his people from the very beginning. Jesus was just the most clear picture of it. You know what's interesting about what happens after Joseph passes away. Several generations go by, and if you go from Genesis to Exodus, in the first of Exodus, it says that there was a new Pharaoh who forgot the ways of Joseph, and he enslaved Israel. There's a fundamental difference between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God leverages assets, abilities, and influence to bless neighbor. The ways of the world takes and imprisons and enslaves. I don't know where you are today as far as this conversation goes. I know for all of us in that passage of scripture that we read, some of those things are things that we hear, and even though we recognize it's Jesus saying them, and maybe we have enough respect for Jesus to accept them as they are, those things are hard for us to truly accept, much less embrace. 
But I'm going to encourage us today that in the world in which we live, it is so easy for us to fall into the trap of accepting things as they are instead of seeing them through the lens of the kingdom of heaven. This is why we have statements like, well, I guess I just have to choose the lesser of two evils. But when we open ourselves up to the way of Jesus and to the kingdom of heaven, we begin to see and understand that we don't have to choose between the lesser of two evils. We can opt for the way of the kingdom of heaven, which presents a real alternative to the existing arrangement. I want to invite us today to a time of reflection. Uh, and this is a time where, um, prayerfully, uh, I want you to consider a couple of uh, questions that we um, respond to. And so I want to begin that by uh, just inviting us to take a couple of deep breaths, um, just a moment of pause um, before we enter into this reflection. As you reflect on this past week, think about this question. What actions did I take that I regret? Then take a moment and think about this question. What did I leave undone that I should have addressed? What patterns in my life Keep me from living uniquely in the way of Jesus. And then as we turn towards next week, think ahead and ask, how might I live uniquely to bless my neighbors?
And let's pray together as Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.